Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Messieurs, faites attention <laughs> à vos bagages. Your accents get more and more outrageous. <laughs> um, that's of course French for Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, ladies and gentlemen. Look out for your luggage. Um, over the next few days, well, next few days, in the last couple of days, James and I have been reading our um, bits of our favourite Christmas passages and bits of just our favourite books about World War Two for you to enjoy. We hope. What have you got for us today, James? Well, I've got Brave Men by Ernie Pyle and. Um, uh, his writing is just absolutely fantastic, and he was the first. He was a real sort of pioneer. He's he's an incredibly famous man in America during the Second World War, and actually before the Second World War. And he used to work for the um, Scripps Howard newspaper syndicate. Um, and before the war, he would write all these little bits about you know just traveling through America, and, mm. and it was just sort of day-to-day life. It was the ordinary Joe, you know, and what they were up to, and he'd have conversations with them. And he had this incredibly sort of empathetic way of, of, of writing about them. Um, and he'd bring in his own voice as well. And no one had written journalism like this before. So it's a completely new way of doing it, very sort of personalised, bottom man up. Yeah. Um, and then he became this kind of war reporter, um, a correspondent, and everyone just loved him even more because they were getting Ernie Pyle's take from what it was like at the front. And he really put himself in the front line. Yeah. And he was there in London in the Blitz. He was there in North Africa um, in 1942-43, there in Sicily, Italy, Normandy, and eventually went out to um, out to Japan and, and Okinawa where he, was, where he was killed in the kind of, you know, near, very near the end of the war. And he was a very odd guy because he was... You know, he, he was 44 when he died, but he looked at least 10 years older. He was kind of bald and craggy, and, and he was a manic depressive, and he was sometimes he was married to his wife, and sometimes he wasn't. And, We've all been there. Yeah, well, you know. And he... Uh, um, <laughs> Not only Paul's wife. You know, he's... Um, <laughs> but he is just... He, he's this absolute poet. I mean, he's just the most amazing writer. And, and one of the patches I'm going to be reading out is, is just one of the... I think one of the greatest bits of war writing ever. Well, let's hear it. First section comes from um, a chapter called Mountain Fighting, and it's set during early part of 1944, very January 1944, around San Pietro, just south of Monte Cassino. You have to recognise that um, Ernie Parr was American. This should be read in an American accent, but uh, we've decided we're not going to even attempt that. In this war I have known a lot of officers who were loved and respected by the soldiers under them, but never have I crossed the trail of any man as beloved as Captain Henry T. Wasco of Belton, Texas. Captain Wasco was a company commander in the 36th Division. He had led his company since long before it left the States. He was very young, only in his middle twenties, but he carried in him a sincerity and a gentleness that made people want to be guided by him. After my father, he came next, a sergeant told me. He always looked after us, a soldier said. He'd go to bat for us every time. I've never known him do anything unfair, another said. I was at the foot of the mule trail the night they brought Captain Wasco down. The moon was nearly full, 
and you could see far up the trail and even part way across the valley below. Dead men had been coming down the mountain all evening, lashed onto the backs of mules. They came lying belly down across the wooden pack saddles, their heads hanging down on one side, their stiffened legs sticking out awkwardly from the other, bobbing up and down as the mules walked. The Italian mule skinners were afraid to walk beside dead men, so Americans had to lead the mules down that night. Even the Americans were reluctant to unlash and lift off the bodies when they got to the bottom, so an officer had to do it himself and ask others to help. I don't know who that first one was. You feel small in the presence of dead men, and you don't ask silly questions. They slid him down from the mule and stood him on his feet for a moment. In the half-light, he might have been merely a sick man standing there, leaning on the others. Then they laid him on the ground in the shadow of the stone wall alongside the road. We left him there beside the road, that first one, and we all went back into the cowshed and sat on water cans or lay on the straw, waiting for the next batch of mules. Somebody said that the dead soldier had been dead for four days, and then nobody said anything more about it. We talked soldier talk for an hour or more. The dead man lay all alone, outside in the shadow of the wall. Then a soldier came into the cowshed and said there were some more bodies outside. We went out onto the road. Four mules stood there in the moonlight, in the road where the trail came down off the mountain. The soldiers who led them stood there waiting. This one is Captain Wasco, one of them said quietly. The two men unlashed his body from the mule and lifted it off and laid it in the shadow beside the stone wall. Other men took the other bodies off. Finally, there were five lying end to end in a long row. You don't cover up dead men in the combat zones. They just lie there in the shadows until somebody comes after them. The unburdened mules moved off to their olive grove. The men in the road seemed reluctant to leave. They stood around and gradually I could sense them moving, one by one, close to Captain Wasco's body. Not so much to look, I think, as to say something in finality to him and to themselves. I stood close by and I could hear. One soldier came and looked down and he said out loud, God damn it. That's all he said, and then he walked away. Another one came and he said, God damn it to hell anyway, and he looked down for a last few moments and then turned and left. Another man came. I think he was an officer. It was hard to tell officers from men in the dim light, for everybody was bearded and grimy. The man looked down into the dead captain's face and then spoke directly to him as though he were alive. I'm sorry, old man. Then a soldier came and stood beside the officer and bent over, and he too spoke to his dead captain, not in a whisper, but awfully tenderly, and he said, I sure am sorry, sir. Then the first man squatted down, and he reached down and took the captain's hand, and he sat there for a full five minutes holding the dead hand in his own, and looking intently into the dead face, and he never uttered a sound all the time he sat there. Finally he put the hand down. He reached over and gently straightened the points of the captain's shirt collar, and then he sort of rearranged the tattered edges of the uniform around the wound, and then he got up and walked away down the road in the moonlight, all alone. The rest of us went back into the cowshed, leaving the five dead men lying in a line end to end, in the shadow of the low stone wall. We lay down on the straw in the cowshed, and pretty soon we were all asleep.
I have to say that is one of the most famous bits of writing from the Second World War and one of the most famous bits of writing that Ernie Paul, who was much loved in the US, ever wrote. And I think you can understand why. But this second extract uh, comes from D-Day and, uh, well, the invasion of Normandy in June 1944. And Ernie Paul is one of the first uh, war correspondents to, to land at Omaha Beach. I took a walk along the historic coast of Normandy in the country of France. It was a lovely day for strolling along the seashore. Men were sleeping on the sand, some of them sleeping forever. Men were floating in the water, but they didn't know they were in the water, for they were dead. The water was full of squishy little jellyfish about the size of a man's hand. Millions of them. In the centre of each of them was a green design exactly like a four-leaf clover. The good luck emblem. Sure. Hell yes. I walked for a mile and a half along the water's edge of our many mild invasion beach. I walked slowly, for the detail on that beach was infinite. The wreckage was vast and startling. The awful waste and destruction of war, even aside from the loss of human life, has always been one of its outstanding features to those who are in it. Anything and everything is expendable, and we did expend on our beachhead in Normandy during those first few hours. For a mile out from the beach, there were scores of tanks and trucks and boats that were not visible, for they were at the bottom of the water, swamped by overloading, or hit by shells, or sunk by mines. Most of their crews were lost. There were trucks tipped half over and swamped, partly sunken barges, and the angled-up corners of jeeps and small landing craft half-submerged, and at low tide you could still see those vicious six-pronged iron snares that helped snag and wreck them. On the beach itself, high and dry, were all kinds of wrecked vehicles. There were tanks that had only just made the beach before being knocked out. There were jeeps that had burned to a dull grey. There were big derricks on caterpillar treads that didn't quite make it. There were half-tracks carrying office equipment that had been made into a shambles by a single shell hit, their interiors still holding the useless equipage of smashed typewriters, telephones, office files. There were LCTs turned completely upside down and lying on their backs, and how they got that way I don't know. There were boats stacked on top of each other, their sides caved in, their suspension doors knocked off. In this shoreline museum of carnage, there were abandoned rolls of barbed wire and smashed bulldozers and big stacks of thrown-away life belts and piles of shells still waiting to be moved. In the water floated empty life rafts and soldiers' packs and ration boxes and mysterious oranges. On the beach lay snarled rolls of telephone wire and big rolls of steel matting and stacks of broken, rusting rifles. On the beach lay, expended, sufficient men and mechanism for a small war. They were gone forever now, and yet we could afford it. We could afford it because we were on. We had our toehold, and behind us there were such enormous replacements for this wreckage on the beach that you could hardly conceive of the sum total. Men and equipment were flowing from England in such a gigantic stream that it made the waste on the beachhead seem like nothing at all, really nothing at all. But there was another and more human litter. It extended in a thin little line, just like a high watermark, for miles along the beach. This was the strewn personal gear, gear that would never be needed again by those who fought and died to give us our entrance into Europe. There, in a jumbled row for mile on mile, were soldiers' packs. There were socks and shoe polish, sewing kits, diaries, Bibles, hand grenades. There were the latest letters from home, with the address on each one neatly razored out, one of the security precautions enforced before the boys embarked. 
There were toothbrushes and razors, and snapshots of families back home staring up at you from the sand. There were pocketbooks, metal mirrors, extra trousers, and bloody abandoned shoes. There were broken-handled shovels, and portable radios smashed beyond recognition, and mine detectors twisted and ruined. There were torn pistol belts, and canvas water buckets, first aid kits, and jumbled heaps of life belts. I picked up a pocket Bible with a soldier's name in it and put it in my jacket. I carried it half a mile or so and then put it back down on the beach. I don't know why I picked it up or why I put it down again. Soldiers carry strange things ashore with them. In every invasion there is at least one soldier hitting the beach at H hour with a banjo slung over his shoulder. The most ironic piece of equipment marking our beach, this beach first of despair, then of victory, was a tennis racket that some soldier had brought along. It lay lonesomely on the sand, clamped in its press, not a string broken. Two of the most dominant items in the beach refuse were cigarettes and writing paper. Each soldier was issued a carton of cigarettes just before he started. That day those cartons by the thousand, water-soaked and spilled out, marked the line of our first savage blow. Writing paper and airmail envelopes came second. The boys had intended to do a lot of writing in France. The letters, now forever incapable of being written, that might have filled those blank, abandoned pages. Always there are dogs in every invasion. There was a dog still on the beach, still pitifully looking for his masters. He stayed at the water's edge, near a boat that lay twisted and half-sunk at the waterline. He barked appealingly to every soldier who approached, trotting eagerly along with him for a few feet, and then, sensing himself unwanted in all the haste, he would run back to wait in vain for his own people at his own empty boat. Over and around this long, thin line of personal anguish, fresh men were rushing vast supplies to keep our armies pushing on into France. Other squads of men picked amidst the wreckage to salvage ammunition and equipment that was still usable. Men worked and slept on the beach for days before the last D-Day victim was taken away for burial. I stepped over the form of one youngster whom I thought dead, but when I looked down, I saw he was only sleeping. He was very young and very tired, he lay on one elbow, his hand suspended in the air about six inches from the ground, and in the palm of his hand he held a large, smooth rock. I stood and looked at him for a long time. He seemed in his sleep to hold that rock lovingly, as though it were his last link with a vanishing world. I have no idea at all why he went to sleep with a rock in his hand, or what kept him from dropping it once he was asleep. It was just one of those little things, without explanation, that a person remembers for a long time. And this third section comes from a chapter called Vive la France, um, recorded a little bit later on during the Normandy campaign. Some of the German officers were pleased at being captured, but the dyed-in-the-wool Nazi was not. They brought in a young one who was furious. He considered it thoroughly unethical for us to fight so hard. The Americans had attacked all night, and the Germans don't like night attacks. When this special fellow was brought in, he protested in rage, "'You Americans!' The way you fight, this is not war, this is madness. The German was so outraged, he never even got the irony of his own remarks. That madness though it were, it worked. Another high-ranking officer was brought in, and the first thing he asked was the whereabouts of his personal orderly. When told that his orderly was deader than a mackerel, he flew off the handle and accused us of depriving him of his personal comfort. Who's going to dig my foxhole for me? he demanded. In the early days of the invasion, a whole bevy of high-ranking Allied officers visited Normandy. Generals Marshall, Eisenhower and Arnold, Admirals King and Ramsay. There was so much brass we just bumped into two-star generals without even begging pardon. 
Now generals, it seems, like to be brave. Or I should say that, being generals, they know they must appear to be brave in order to set an example. Consequently, a high-ranking general never ducks or bats an eye when a shell hits near him. Well, the military police charged with conducting this glittering array of generals around our beachhead tried to get them to ride in armoured cars, since the country was full of snipers. But, being generals, they said, no, certainly not. No armoured cars for us. We'll just go in open command cars like anybody else. And that's the way they did go. But what the generals didn't know was this. Taking no chances on such a collection of talent, the MPs hid armoured cars and tanks all along their route, behind hedges and under bushes, out of sight so that the generals couldn't see them. But they're ready for action, just in case anything did happen. The most wrecked town I saw was Saint-Sauveur-le-Vicomte, simply known as Saint-Sauveur. Its buildings were gutted and leaning. Its streets were choked with rubble and vehicles drove over the top of it. Bombing and shell fire from both sides did it. The place looked exactly like World War I pictures of such places as Verdun. At the edge of the town, the bomb craters were so immense that whole houses could have been put into them. A veteran of the last war pretty well summed up the two wars when he said, This is just like the last war, only the holes are bigger. So far as I know, we entered France without anybody making a historic remark about it. Last time, you know, it was Lafayette, here we are. The nearest I heard to a historic remark was made by an ACAC gunner sitting on a mound of earth about two weeks after D-Day, reading the Stars and Stripes from London. All of a sudden, he said, Say, where's this Normandy beachhead it talks about in here? I looked at him closely and saw he was serious. So I said, Why, you're sitting on it. And he said, Well, I'll be damned. I never knowed that. Well, that's terrific, James. Thank you very much. Yep. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.